0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. As we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, and uh, we'll continue uh, today in our series in the book of Acts, uh, just a little overview going forward next Sunday, actually next Saturday evening will be Christmas Eve candlelight service, and uh, then Sunday we'll do some topical stuff there, and then after, after Christmas we will resume back to Acts chapter 2, uh, January 1st in the new year, so that'll be, that'll be an exciting Uh, text that we enter at that time. But opening our Bibles to Acts chapter 2, let me begin with just a a brief reference to our earlier scripture reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That that was a riveting chapter. Reveals a a call for repentance. Uh, That call is not a one-time momentary reaction the day of our salvation. Uh, rather, for the Christian, a repentance, it is a perpetual experience uh, every single time that our soul is laid bare uh, by the truths, uh, w- w- when sin is exposed by Scripture. Um, I'll, I'll return later to reinforce that as a point, uh, but as we begin today, a true repentance or, or a godly sorrow uh, without regret it's, it's something we are called to do on the day of salvation and then continuing as we move on through the Christian walk. For Israel in our passage, Acts chapter 2, however, reveals a sorrow and repentance that most assuredly does occur on their day of salvation. It is an initial sorrow of knowing That they had just crucified the promised Messiah. Their long-anticipated Davidic king. God's own son. And for those who are born in Israelite, that would be enough to make anybody sick. You just, Peter says, you just crucified your king. Boy, whoops. Therefore, verse uh, verse 37 states, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as our Lord God, uh, our God, will call to himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Be saved from this perverse generation. Boy, could any statement in scripture be more applicable today than that statement by Peter on the day of Pentecost? I'm sure there were more than a couple in, the, in that large crowd that probably probably said, couldn't you find somebody who's a little more uplifting? That summary in verse 41, it describes those who had received Peter's word. It indicates that about 3,000 who were baptized, they had repented. I'll introduce a, a, a definition of repentance a little bit later, uh, of, but notice how Peter didn't instruct his hearers uh, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus and, and then follow up by saying, you know, now since you're Christians, you, know, you might want to consider maybe a few changes to your life. Think about maybe turning from your sin if you feel uh, that's something that that." you can tolerate, go along with. No, if you have a good translation, I think every translation places repent at the beginning, it is in the emphatic position. At the beginning of Peter's reply, and in the original Greek, it's written in the imperative. Scripturally, receiving the word in obedience to Peter's command to repent, Occurs before baptism. It's a small problem for those who baptize infants, all right. But repentance is also a concern for those of us who baptize adults, because when a person asks to be baptized, a pastor can't really know their heart, and in this life, we'll never really know for sure. Perhaps this is part of the reason the apostles baptized 3,000 souls at Pentecost before taking an opportunity to fully evaluate each one or require these candidates for baptism. He had to fill out a doctrinal questionnaire long form. Some churches do. Even require a class before baptism and the longer I'm in ministry, the less I fault them. Because Peter's sermon made the charges of sin exceptionally clear, and so should we today. It is discouraging to baptize someone, thereby they are claiming to be a Christian in front of the church and their friends and the world, and then later see them fall into unrepentance. It it makes you a little ill as a pastor. It it, it does. Um, I I have repeatedly seen it happen. Even believer baptism uh, doesn't eliminate the sting of false confessions. Yet, The Apostle Paul numbs the pain a little bit in Corinth. Uh, He states to those carnal Christians in 1 Corinthians 1.14 a little bit of of, of, uh, encouragement for the pastor. He said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. That would be a very odd statement from an Apostle if water baptism saved. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, says Paul, I don't know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would be made void. Paul says, it's the preaching of the gospel that I make my business. And therefore, regardless of the method of your baptism or the age of your baptism, water baptism we're speaking here, or complete lack of it, we know from other endless passages written throughout the New Testament that by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. We're not saved through water baptism. Rather, in Acts chapter 16 and verse 31, Paul declares, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved. And in Romans 10 verse 9, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, and you will be saved. Saved. Saved is, is a term meaning saved from the penalty of your sins. It's forgiveness of sins. You've been saved from damnation, you've been saved from agony. One of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation uh, declares that salvation is by faith alone. Some who profess baptismal regeneration, uh, that implies forgiveness of sins. Often this passage is, is used to defend that, uh, but it implies the forgiveness of sins uh, arrives when people get wet. The moment they get wet. Um, such people say, yeah, but you know the gospel of Mark, you go to 16, chapter 16, verse 16, and it states, believe and be baptized, and you'll be saved. Well, that's that a true statement. Believe and be baptized and you will be saved. Believe and attend church and you will be saved. Believe and give, give alms and you will be saved. For that matter, believe and eat Cheetos and you will be saved. You, you can combine faith with anything and it saves. Sure, sure it's true that if you truly believe and you are baptized, you will be saved. But then Mark 16, verse 16, um, it continues that point, concluding, "...but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned." So even the full reading of that sentence in Mark itself clarifies that it is exclusively the absence or the void of faith in Jesus Christ that becomes the sole basis for damnation but it might be asked if salvation is by faith alone and if it's only by faith alone how then can Christians insist the life of every true Christian must also be typified by repentance isn't that faith plus repentance repentance I'll get to that. But first, make no mistake. If you do believe, your first steps of following Christ should lead you into the waters of baptism. But immersion in water doesn't save. Uh, Plenty of people have made false professions by being baptized and then sometime later in their life lived like devils. Their, their baptism clearly didn't save them from the penalty of sins. Uh, but there remains one more puzzling verse I need to cite before moving on because I know I'm going to get texted about this afterwards if I don't handle it uh, today. Uh, not that I get pestered, I don't, but sometimes I get some good questions. Uh, it's First Peter 3.21, which it, it's been a pru, abused as a proof text really be, because it's only a pretext. But it reads this, baptism now saves you. Whoa. Have you ever heard a pastor, by the way, uh, read that first half of that verse, those four words, out of context? I have. I have. Uh, Do those four words mean we just toss out everything else that we read in Scripture? No, not at all. What does it mean? It means we just read the rest of the verse. Which reveals the nature of that baptism Peter is describing. And Peter begins saying, you know, just like Noah built an ark, and that preserved him and his family carrying them through water. Peter says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but a response to God from a clean conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So salvation is not the result of the physical experience of passing through water, but a result of Noah's faith that responded by building an ark. Peter says, likewise, this baptism is not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not a physical thing, uh, but rather a response to God from a clean conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's faith that saves you. Um, Therefore, it is clearly a pre-existing faith that carries you into and through the waters of baptism. In 1 Peter 3.21, I'll admit, that is a difficult passage. It's challenging, but it certainly doesn't erase everything that we learn throughout the balance of Scripture. Uh, rather, 1 Peter 3.21 is clarified by what we learn in other places in Scripture. Uh, the correct interpretation is that just as saving faith materialized in an ark that carried Noah and his family through water, uh, so also saving faith will naturally materialize in carrying us into the water. But baptism itself doesn't save. Um, Always let the clear passages explain those things which are less clear in Scripture. Um, It's not a material aspect of water baptism that saves. It's a spiritual aspect, uh, as clarified by John the baptizer himself, Uh, He stated in Matthew 3, Well, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So there's a Holy Spirit baptism in play here as well. Uh, Peter may actually be suggesting... The baptism he's talking about there uh, is the Holy Spirit baptism that now saves you. Uh, Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but a response to God from a clear conscience. Having clarified this, our engine's revved up. We're ready to move on? Repentance? Well, it'll help us to perceive what Peter says in Acts chapter 2. Because when verse 38 reveals, quote, Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we combine that with the conclusion, the summary in verse 41, the result, so then, those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The scriptural prerequisite for water baptism includes both repenting and embracing the word which Peter preached, the information that he had given. What is the information? What is receiving the word It includes every subject matter that Peter had preached on this day? It begins all the way back in verse Fourteen. This is the day of Pentecost. Uh, number one, that the Father's promise of the Holy Spirit has been granted to Israel. That's, that's what they hear. Number two, that Jesus was attested to by God throughout, uh, through many irrefutable miracles. Number three, Jesus is assuredly King David's royal descendant. Uh, Whom he prophesied about in the Psalms. It's only Jesus whose body did not see decay. Number four, he says, We apostles stand before you today as eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And number five, If you sincerely by faith profess him as both Lord and Christ, He whom you crucified... You repent, you be baptized, you receive the forgiveness of sins. What a deal. What a deal! Who wouldn't take that deal? Who, who wouldn't do it? Who, who's standing there? There yet. who's sitting here would dare not do? What Holy Scripture reveals God requires for the salvation of your eternal soul. Well, there's always, there has always existed a lot of stiff necks. Always. We will discover that most visiting Jerusalem at Pentecost may be upwards as high as a million people. It was a pilgrimage feast. Lower end, probably 250,000, but maybe even as high as a million people. We're We're not completely sure. But most visiting Jerusalem that day, they didn't respond. They didn't respond on that day. They didn't respond the next day. They didn't respond ever. One of my theological resources, one of my better ones, Uh, went to great lengths, great lengths stressing, this passage was never intended uh, to outline a strategy for church growth. Rather, it's revealing one narrow path to escape condemnation that historically, only a very small fraction of the audience ever responds to from this earliest period it's from this day all the way up until jerusalem is destroyed in 70 ad christianity will remain a marginalized and a persecuted sect as most jews clearly refuse to take the deal ethnic israel broadly did not want this savior that god had provided to them They didn't want it for themselves. They didn't want it for their children. They didn't want it for as many as are far off. And throughout Israel's history, only a small remnant ever responds. A brief outline of Acts. Break it into three sections here. The first third of the book, it's about... Ten chapters, the offer of the new covenant remains exclusively to Israel. The second third, who will watch, is believing Gentiles are grafted in to share this promise of the Holy Spirit alongside Israel. We'll see that in Antioch, them sharing this together, this promise that the Lord had given. And then Approximately the last third will begin to see a... It will reveal a prevalence. The end of Acts will reveal a prevalence of Gentile Christians. And it begins to be described as the times of the Gentiles. As Israel hardened, as they are hardened, and as the remnant grows smaller, uh, Israel's hardening never becomes universal. Never universal. It always remains partial. It's a partial hardening. How partial? I, I don't know. This big? this It's a partial hardening. It's not giving us an understanding of what part is hardened. Um, but it's a hardening that remains partial. In Romans chapter 11, uh, after having a discussion with Josie last Sunday, he texted me after service. One of those that... No, he's a very good question. After speaking to Josie, he had a question about this, and I think think it's good to fit this in. Uh, Romans 11 tells us to expect that this partial hardening of Israel will continue all the way up until Christ returns. But not to worry, writes the Apostle Paul, because just as Paul reveals in Romans 9, although Esau and all ethnic Israel is clearly not saved and won't be saved. That's the argument of Romans chapter 9. God has a master plan, and it's Romans chapter 11. There will be Gentiles grafted in to true believing Israel and numbered among Abraham's true descendants by faith. That's the argument of Romans in general that the Gentiles have been grafted in to Israel by faith. Not replaced, grafted in. Uh, And as Israel is hardened, the remnant is small, uh, Romans 10 verse 12 then reveals that God makes no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches... For all who call on him, Romans 10 again, and whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Consequently, with believing Gentiles now grafted into Israel, with the Gentiles grafted in, all true believing Israel will be saved. I had a professor at Dallas Seminary uh, state that Romans 11 suggests that all Israel, meaning all ethnic Israel will be saved. Yeah, you never see that in Scripture. In fact, back to Elijah and everywhere else, it's it's always a remnant. It's always partial. Uh, If I could go back and talk to him, I'd say, that is not the logical progression from Romans 9, Romans 10, and Romans 11. Rather, Romans 11 and verse 7 actually reveals what Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who are chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. The same passage describes believing Israel as, have, as having remained by God's choice a small remnant, a hardened remnant. Um, and Paul's conclusion is that this partial hardening of Israel will continue until these times of the Gentiles are complete. Uh, That's when the Lord comes. And rather than suggesting the partial hardening of Israel will be removed prior to Christ's coming, Romans 11 actually says this partial hardening will continue. Don't expect, the argument is, don't expect the church to return to exclusively Israel as it is during the first 10 chapters of Acts. It won't return to that, uh, but rather we are to remain, we expect to remain uh, a partial hardening of the Jews in the church all the way up until the end. But Paul says, don't worry. All true Israel, defined in Romans 11, that same chapter, as inclusive of Gentiles having been grafted in, all Israel will be saved. All the chosen, all the elect, Jew, Gentile, all will be saved. That doesn't mean all will be saved. Um, Folks, you're wondering, why did we go down that rabbit trail? Here's why. The point is, the new covenant announced to Israel at Pentecost it's not only for Israel the same promise applies equally to you and your children Gentile children sitting right next to you and for for as many as are far off the promises for all nations the question is are you going to rise as part of the believing remnant who responds to the charge of Peter by repenting of your sins, turning to Christ, and being na- being baptized in his name. Are you going to accept the offer that so many have rejected over the centuries? Are you, you brainwashed into thinking that preaching shouldn't be radical? Verse 40 is as relevant today as it has been in any day. And it says, And with many other words, many other words, Peter solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Forgiveness of sins is offered today. Take the gift. For the sake of your children, take the gift. What a, what a perverse nation we live in. Who, who could believe the types of things that we're seeing today? People deceive. People thinking, people in our culture thinking, you know what, I just kind of like this new stuff. Everybody just do what they want to do. Love is love. Uh, just let it roll. They, and they think they're a rebel. Yeah, I'm a rebel. My parents took me to church. I went to Sunday school. I'm a rebel. They, they, they really think they're going against the grain by joining the broad road that is accepting all this stuff. You want to be courageous. You want to be a rebel. You want to stand out. You follow Jesus Christ. You get on the narrow path. You live for righteousness. You just join what the culture is doing. You don't stand out. You're just one of the pack. If you really want to serve, uh, Christ and your family you're going to say I'm going to go against the grain I'm going to stand against that which is wrong I'm going to be different than 99% of what I see going on around here I'm going to stand for the Lord Jesus Christ be saved from this perverse generation an essential side note know it here and I'll say I love R.C. Sproul in a lot of ways. I really do. But I have to, have to bring up a side note because you're going to read this. And many of you I know have the Reformation Study Bible uh, where R.C. Sproul states this uh, in, in relation to this passage. He says, quote, Peter's extension of the promise to the children of believers is strong evidence that the New Covenant sign of initiation, baptism, is to be applied to the children of believers under the New Covenant. Why he is sorely mistaken there. Um, The promise contained within this passage is not infant baptism. I I really like R.C. Sproul. But infant baptism is his tradition talking. Not the Bible. Peter's stated promise is this, that if your children follow the same pattern of receiving the words of Peter, as they're preached today, and repenting, in that case, the promise remains, in effect, for them to claim as well, uh, and to as many as are far off, including you and including me. The point made in the text is not that a person of faith baptizes their infants in water, But the saving faith must embrace everything that Peter has preached. That's the promise. And true faith responds eh, the scripturally prescribed way. Faith displays itself to the world, beginning with presenting yourself to be immersed in water in the name of Jesus. It's a symbolic statement uh, to, to be fully cleansed. Be immersed, be dipped, be baptized, be cleansed, a symbolic statement uh, of, of turning from sin uh, through Jesus' death, being buried into the water, the burial, and then the resurrection again from the dead. Um, the reason that some Christians never, never receive a believer's baptism Some will go their whole life, uh, like R.C. Sproul or my mom, for instance. Uh, It's that they've been guided into an error by a long-standing, a socially obligatory religious tradition. It's what we've always done. My whole family does it. They did it to me. I'm going to do it to my kids. It's not necessarily a damning error. Um, Not all, uh, but some pedo- Baptists, uh, those are those who baptize infants. Some pedo-baptists, not all, but some believe like us. They do. Uh, They believe that they are saved by grace alone through faith alone. And when baptizing their infants, they're not denying Christ as Savior. They're not denying the virgin birth. They're not denying those essentials uh, of the truth of historic Christianity It's just when it comes to baptism, they've they've been wrong. They've been wrong. Got this bowl here. You know what this is? That's my mom's baptism bowl. She was a Lutheran back in the day. A baptism bowl. She was a small baby. (laughs) Oh, my mom loved the Lord. Uh... The way this would work back in that day, they didn't have running water even at that point. You know, they, the 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 clergyman would hold the baby and you know, dip three times, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And she she loved the Lord, she passed that on to me. Uh, it's it's kind of a neat little family heirloom. Uh, doubles for other things. We we got our at the ball last night, the Christmas ball, how many liked the Christmas ball? That was a good time. Yeah, we got our tickets for the door prizes out of it. Uh, it's great on Super Bowl Sunday. you got the you fit a lot of guacamole in there. I'll keep it. I, I, I like it. I like it. Um, just an error. It's just an error. Um, I, have, I have a pretty strong distaste for infant baptism. I do. Uh, but doing this to a child, it doesn't negate God's choice. I was infant baptized. It, it didn't prevent me from later responding to the gospel by the Holy Spirit. As verse 39 says, uh, I was called. The Lord called me. And I eventually determined, uh, after a period of time, I was saved at that, at that time by faith. Eventually, over time, got to read the Bible more and other things. And I professed my faith the way that Scripture prescribes. Believer baptism. Um, the, po- the problem with pedo baptism isn't that it damns, it's that it confuses a lot of people to believe that they are Christian merely because they were dipped in water, um, yet still have never repented of their sins. The same can be said among those who ask or have requested to be baptized at some point in their life. Scores of people have been baptized to please parents' expectations. Or because their teen friends did it, it was kind of the hip thing to do, or because some false teacher told them that professing Christ uh, by doing that they would, you know, your life's problems would go away, you'd prosper, become rich. Just give your life to Jesus. Um, That's that's a big lie. None of these none of these baptisms display a right motivation for being immersed. And there's. Further, uh, another false bill of goods, it's marketed under the banner of Christianity, this one is serious. This one is damnable. It's that you can enjoy forgiveness of sins without ever having repented. Boy, that's a prevalent false doctrine today. You can enjoy your cake and eat it too. Have all the forgiveness, infinite forgiveness, and then just go live however you like. Now Peter assures you must repent. But since the grace of God is through faith alone, does that mean that repentance is optional? Or something that is added afterwards Or is repentance a human work of obedience that incrementally contributes to our salvation? The answer to all these is no. No, repentance is not optional to salvation. It's not something we add to salvation. Repentance is not our own human effort that progressively merits salvation. Rather, repentance is a characteristic of salvation you may have heard the Greek term uh, repent it means to reconsider to to turn to God uh, to change one's mind these are all true to repent does mean to turn your heart to Christ it does occur at the moment of salvation but turning to Christ is only half of salvation's equation. The command to repent also means to turn away and to give your back to sin. In a few more chapters, Peter will tell Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8 repent of this wickedness of yours, I mean, turn away. implies that you stop doing something evil. The Apostle Paul, testifying before King Agrippa in Acts 26, says that that as he preached, he did it at Jerusalem, in all Judea, even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. So there are deeds that are appropriate for repentance. It's behavior-oriented. Behavior has changed when one has turned to God. It doesn't remain the same. Just continue as it was before you were saved. Um, You could describe repentance as a characteristic characteristic or a trait of salvation. You could also call it a fruit of salvation. Something that comes from salvation naturally. Uh, What you can't call it is separate from salvation. A gospel that produces salvation also produces repentance. A theologian that many of you may know from years past, his name is Charles Ryrie. Pretty, pretty good theologian. He stated that if salvation would be illustrated as a penny, faith, could, faith and repentance could be compared to the two faces on that penny. Without both a head and a tail, you, you don't have a penny. Likewise, faith and repentance, they travel together. They're part of salvation together. It's not something added to salvation. I, I could give a host of other scripture references that assure that repentance involves a refinement of our moral choices. Uh, but We have time for just one more. Just one more. Revelation 2.21. It's a statement that Christ sent to the church in Thyatira about a woman. Her name was Jezebel. And our Lord said, I gave her time to repent. And she does not want to repent of her immorality. Therefore, our Lord revealed, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to purge Jeze- uh, Jezebel from the flock. I'm going to purge her out of there. Uh, that's similar to what Paul instructed The Corinthians to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is to remove the immoral brother from you. Uh, That command for expulsion, by the way, it it was meant to, wasn't meant to be mean. It it was meant to force the individual, the so-called brother, to choose, you know, what life do you want? What life do you want? Do you want to pursue a lifestyle of moral repentance along with the church? Pursue it. Or do you want to pursue a lifestyle of sin along with the world? Because you can't do both. They're incompatible for a Christian. And uh, it's very likely that the fruit of this individual's repentance, this man who is corrected, is described in our scripture reading earlier from Second. Uh, Corinthians chapter 7. And I included that as our scripture reading because as I said previously, I wanted to reinforce for us that this repentance, this turning to God, this turning away from sin, uh, true salvation, it's not a one-time experience. Not, not one thing that happens when you're saved. Uh, feel bad that God's Son died for, for sins on a cross. Uh, turn to Him to claim forgiveness of sins. I want to cash that check thank you very much, and then just returning again to any course of life that we want. That, that's not a genuine salvation experience, uh, and that is not a motive to be baptized. Repentance characterizes the life of each Christian from the day we trust in Jesus until the day that Christ takes us home. Sin becomes our sworn enemy. It indwells us. We are subject to some of its strength, but it can't overpower the Spirit perpetually. Um. Many a false teacher has conveyed to their congregation, you know, if you merely believe that God's Son died for your sins, you'll be baptized. See, it says, be baptized in His name. You get forgiveness of sins. And then you can just hypothetically return to your old life perpetually until Christ returns. Now, I'm not implying here any of us is ever going to reach sinless perfection. I don't think any of us, I know none of us, especially us, Sinless perfection. No, no, no. Uh, That is surely not what Scripture teaches. Rather, a person born again by the Holy Spirit of God, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, things have become new. Paul summarizes the Christian attitude in Romans 6. Uh, What shall we say then? Shall we continue to, to live in sin so that grace may increase? May, may it never be. How, how can we who died to sin now now live in it? How can we dwell in it? I'm not saying that we, we won't slip, that we won't make a mistake, that we won't sin. We will, we will all the way until Christ takes us home. Um, but some of you here wonder what gives. You know, I believe that I believe when I'm correctly told, you might say that when a Christian uh, lives, he won't reach sinless perfection in this life. But I also believe I'm correctly told that a Christian just can't live unrepentantly in sin, which is true. Both are true. Both are true. Our Christian conviction and our confidence is that we shall not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who cleanses us from all sin, perpetually. We aren't going to live in sinless perfection perpetually, but Christ is going to continue to cleanse us who belong to Him perpetually. And the Christian experiences a battle against these desires of the flesh. Striving, saying, oh, wretched man that I am. And when our sin is exposed, it it causes a sorrow unto repentance. If your sin makes you sad, well, you ought to be glad. That reflects an attitude of repentance. Uh, not, not a sorrow that you got caught or a sorrow that you landed in jail. That, that, that's the world's sorrow that leads to death. But a sorrow of how your Savior had to die for those sins pierces you to the heart. He was crucified and He died. And that invisible struggle in your heart and the sorrow over the offense of sin, folks, it's actually evidence that you're saved. If you're having trouble with your sin, that's a good thing. My sin really troubles me. Every time I look in the mirror, there's a sorrow. But it's a sorrow without regret because it is the Holy Spirit that has reminded me that Christ has not yet come. It's a promised sign of salvation when we struggle against the sin because a gospel that produces salvation also produces repentance. Let's pray.